Good morning, everyone. It is my great um, privilege in a moment to introduce Gareth Davies from CARE. Um, Just to set the scene of what we're doing this morning, you'll remember that at the start of this year and last year, we ran a preaching series called Trending Now, where we engaged, we looked at issues in wider society that as Christians we should take an interest in, we should understand that we've been called by God to have a to represent his voice into our society on some of these issues. And last November, um, we had the privilege of church leaders in Swindon of um, going and engaging and meeting these guys. They put on a lovely lunch for us up in Rawton. And um, I was just bowled over. I was really super impressed by care and and all the work that these guys are doing in Parliament, representing Christians, standing, upholding the Bible, um, helping Christian MPs and MPs understand some of the big issues from a Christian perspective. I was just dead impressed with what they're doing. And, and, I, and one of the issues that is so prevalent in our culture right now is a whole area of euthanasia. And it was one of the things that, as we were looking at this preaching series, January just gone, I was thinking I'd love us to engage with that. But when I met these guys, I thought, yep, they can come and do that big topic for us. They'll do a much better job than I would. So Gareth, we, thank you so much for serving us. Just to say the young people in the first meeting were, I was watching them, they were like fixed. And so can we welcome Gareth as he comes and serves us this morning? Thank you, Gareth. Well, good morning, everyone. Lovely to be here. And um, uh, you look just as lively and friendly as the first congregation. (laughs) Can I just say that? So uh, maybe coffee before the service is good. Um, So a couple of things. I'm going to introduce myself briefly, then um, show a little video of CARE, just so that you can get uh, familiar with our organisation and talk briefly about CARE's ministry before looking at this very serious topic that we want to um, spend some time on Uh, This morning. So, I'm the UK Director of Care. Uh, Primarily, my primary responsibility has been communicating with churches about getting involved in politics, ethics, the big discussions of society um, that are going on. And we've got an office uh, just near Westminster, which I spend three days a week in, as well as being out on the road like I am today. So, um, I came up from New Forest area this morning. Um, on a little road trip I'm doing today, uh, Swindon this morning, Cheshire this evening, talking about the EU referendum tonight I am, pray for me, um, and then, uh, then the Lake District later on, um, ready for a meeting in the morning. So I'm going to see one end of the country and the other end of the country. I'm married to Ruth, we've got two teenage children, one's um, Sussex Uni and one is currently uh, doing his A2s. So the tension in the household is palpable at the moment. So, um, and previously I worked with the University and Colleges Christian Fellowship with Christian Unions at University uh, for seven years, which I loved until my back could no longer take student floors. So, um, let's have a quick look at the work of care. God calls Christians to stand up and be counted to live lives that matter, to make a difference in every sector of society. CARE is a Christian charity based on biblical values. At the heart of all we do is the issue of human dignity. CARE reflects the church within the nation and engages the Church of Jesus Christ in its various different expressions to be a Christian voice of truth in its time. 
very privileged to be able to support MPs, both Christians and those with, with no faith, actually, if they're with us on our issues. And we do that in a variety of ways. We may provide really good quality research for them. We'll provide briefings for them if they're giving speeches on particular bills that are going through on our issues. And actually to be there and to pray for them, have a real interest in them and support them in any way we can. There's been a huge lie that many Christians have swallowed, and that is that religion and politics shouldn't mix. Um, but I say it's actually really important to be salt and light uh, in our communities, uh, whether that is you know, on your local doorstep or in a national parliament. Care has been honoured to make a significant contribution in our parliaments and assemblies on matters to do with child protection, children's education, abortion, trafficking, euthanasia. These issues are so vital to our modern society. CARES helped me uh, with some really good briefings. Every briefing that CARE provides, you can rely on. Through our leadership programme, we are committed to see a generation of young leaders raised up with a heart to make an impact for God in the public square. During the week, Monday to Thursday, I intern at the Scottish Parliament and I do all sorts of things from writing motions, press releases, and just really getting involved in the work of the Parliament. We have the opportunity every Friday to meet together as a group. So that means we have a real sense of community. Um, we have the opportunity to share with each other, pray together, really keep coming back to how we connect our faith with our work. I've always wanted to apply my faith to work but I never really knew how to, and care has been a great way to open my eyes into how, as Christians, we can be bold and really apply our faith fully in what we do. You're really encouraged to challenge your own ideas, but in the context of a secure, supported um, environment. We can really encourage churches through how to contact their MPs, their local councillors, their MEPs about the key political issues of the day. I would encourage churches to use those resources. I mean, the simplest one is the website. The CARE website is a fount of information, but also subscribing to the regular newsletter, the prayer updates. They're easy to get hold of, uh, and they can inform our own teaching and preaching as well. The CARE Prayer Diary covers a range of topics, and uh, it equips Christians to pray effectively. Here are resources that are helping me to better understand the world in which I live. Care supporters are the lifeblood of care um, and we could not do this work without them. The call of Christian discipleship is the call to get involved in our communities. Getting involved with care is a great way to do that because they provide the expertise and the knowledge that allows ordinary Christians to have a positive process of engaging in politics, not just standing on the sidelines and getting frustrated. I would encourage you to sign up to our mailing list, pray for us, but perhaps even consider giving to us because that really will help us make that difference with you for the future. So that gives you a little sample of the, uh, the work we're involved in. We're involved in all the parliaments and assemblies of the UK, working closely with politicians. We're not a pressure group. Uh, we have a, a group of issues that we uh, are particularly called to be involved in, things like the life issues, one of which we'll be talking about today, 
uh, marriage and family, human trafficking, sexual misuse in society. Those kinds of areas are the ones that we're, we're best known for our involvement in. And one of the things that you will have seen profiled there is our care leadership program for young people uh, the year after university to come and get some experience working as an intern uh, with an MP or a member of the House of Lords or a, a non-governmental agency, and then to have a day a week of study of theology, philosophy, and politics. Um, so if any of you are, are interested in that or know people who are, do recommend them to us. Over at the table afterwards, come and see me, come and talk about uh, the issue that I'm talking about this morning or any other care issues, please come and see me. Um, we've got a little care booklet, take it away, have a look at it. If you would like to hear from us regularly, that's a little slip for you to just fill in and leave with me, and we will free of charge send you our mailings, whether you like email or you like postal or both, we can organise that for you, and love to take back some more supporters with me today. Uh, the more supporters that we have when we speak to politicians, when we say there are 50,000 people that we represent, when we go to see them on one of our key issues, it really does make a difference, so do fill those in if you feel called to do that. And also the talk that I'm giving this morning, much of the material in summary form is contained within this booklet, Live and Let Live, and um, I've got a few copies of that uh, left, so do come and grab one of those if you would like to afterwards. Um, the subject I'm speaking about today is, uh, is quite sobering, it's difficult, it's serious, so here's my first and last joke on the subject. Uh, which is that we produced this leaflet and told all our supporters about it, and one care supporter phoned up and said, please can I have a dozen of your copies of your Live and Let Die leaflet? <laughs> okay, so um, <clears throat> there are few issues as emotive as, um, as how to have a good death. We will all have had different experiences of death in our lives. We will have seen different experiences of death of people that we love and we care for. And uh, therefore, it is bound to be something that has great personal importance to us. We feel ripped to the core of our humanity when faced with the suffering of a friend or a relative. It is totally understandable. That is a totally human reaction. And we ask ourselves lots of questions at times like that. What is the best way to help? What is the most loving action in someone's final days? Perhaps when we allow ourselves a moment of personal reflection, we might even ask ourselves the question, what kind of death do I want? And then there are the wider questions when perhaps we're a little less emotionally attached. What values do we want to hold dear uh, in our society? What is important to our wider society when we think about death and dying? So it's not a cheerful subject, but it's a really important one and a vital one for us to think about carefully. And whatever your experience, I'm sure you will bring that to bear as we consider what the Bible has to say and how we respond as Christians. For myself, my own father, uh, aged 81, had a massive heart attack and died within seconds. My father-in-law suffered for about 20 years before dying at exactly the same age completely different experiences of death, and I'm sure it's the same in your family too. So there are examples of euthanasia in the Bible. Uh, from, here's uh, one example from Judges chapter 9. Next, Abimelech went to Tebez and besieged it and captured it. 
Inside the city, however, was a strong tower to which all the men and women, all the people of the city had fled. They had locked themselves in and climbed up on the tower roof. Abimelech went to the tower and attacked it. But as he approached the entrance of the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped a millstone on his head and cracked his skull. Hurriedly, he called to his armor bearer, draw your sword and kill me so that they can't say a woman has killed him. So his servant ran him through and he died. That's not a good reason for euthanasia. Um, But the wider reason for euthanasia there was autonomy. He wanted to make his own decision about how he died, and he wanted somebody else to administer it to him. Sometimes that's kind of called uh, by those who uh, propose euthanasia for our society as death with dignity, having that human decision yourself. Or there's another example, which is from 2 Samuel chapter 1, concerning Saul, Uh, This is the report that came back. I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said. And there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. So the reason for the euthanasia in this case was compassion, release from suffering. Saul didn't want to suffer any longer, found somebody uh, who happened to be passing and asked him to kill him. Now, of course... Inclusion of stories in the Bible don't necessarily convey endorsement of the actions of the individual, nor do they necessarily criticize. We have to look at the whole sweep of Scripture to see what it is that God holds dear and what principles we as Christians bring to these kinds of discussions. So, uh, in the case of this important issue, as with many other issues, we start at the very beginning. We start with the creation of mankind. Genesis chapter 1, as we well know. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make humankind in our own image to be like ourselves. Uh, And following on in verses 27 and 28. And there are some really important principles here. Actually, they're principles that apply to almost every area of life. I use these verses repeatedly in different scenarios. First of all, the image of God is in each one of us. Implanted in each of us. doesn't matter whether you're the youngest or the oldest. Whether you're the richest or you're the poorest whether you're the most able or the most incapacitated, all matter equally in the sight of God. And that is crucial to our understanding of everything from a Christian point of view. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. You saw those other, you see in the previous verses, the other things that are created, they're all wonderful things. But they're not as wonderful as us with the image of God within us. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. After us, he rests satisfied. So his image is in each one of us, and that is something for us to base our principles on. Secondly, we 
At the heart of our humanity is relationship. We know that because let us make. It's the first inception of the plurality of the Godhead. God is more than one person. You can't prove from this verse that God is a trinity. You have to work all the way through the pages of scripture to work that out. But we know that God is a relationship, a living, continuous relationship. And because we are made to be like him, therefore relationships are at the foundation of our humanity. And that's really important. It's important because of just the way we live our lives. Whatever it is you face today or tomorrow, it is always better to face it with other people. We all know that instinctively, don't we? The very worst thing that can happen for somebody with an illness or with unemployment or whatever difficulties they go through is to face it alone. That is a profoundly non-Christian way to face it. We should be facing it in community. And churches are a wonderful example of bringing people together to experience community at the highest moments of their lives and at the lowest moments of their lives. And that is part of our prophetic witness as the body of Christ. And because of that, because of this linkage that we have as human beings, it means Whatever happens to you, in some way, shape, or form, matters to me. Okay, We can't experience something, and it doesn't affect everyone else. Okay, It might feel like that on occasions, but it, that's not the Christian way. And therefore, we have responsibility for one another. We have an interdependence. So therefore, there's no such thing as an autonomous decision that only affects the decision maker. It doesn't exist. It affects everybody else in some way, shape or form. Of course, as we flip the page into Genesis 3, we see what the inception of sin, our deliberate wrongdoing, has in terms of our human relationships. And they become messy and murky now. Because rather than being 100% perfect in looking out for one another, suddenly we are deliberately doing things wrong and we're then covering up those things with lies and deception. And as a result, we all know what it is to be cynical of one another's attitudes and we all know what it is to think the very worst of other people. That is part of the legacy of the fall which all of us are complicit in. And of course, that has huge implications for this whole area of looking after the image of God in one another. So from Genesis 9, for example, whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. So, you know, when you, uh, when you start reading the Bible at the beginning, as we often do, don't we? You sort of start maybe at the beginning of the year, start reading Genesis 1. You start in Genesis 1, and it's great news. It's so fantastic. Genesis 2, equally good and fun. Genesis 3, the story's looking more complex. By Genesis 4, you're into murder. You know, that's kind of, that's how quick everything comes across to us in the, in the way that we read the Bible, And you can see how once we move away from this sense of looking after the image of God, we can end up in a very dark place. Indeed, David Alton, many people will know, former MP, member of the House of Lords, Lord Alton of Liverpool, says 
you know, there is no end to where we as a society will end up if we celebrate a culture of death. That's his kind of phrase. Now, as a Christian, we read the pages of the Bible to find out what it is we are called to do in order to celebrate the image of God, to protect that in one another. And there are so many fantastic examples I could share. Many of you will have come across the prophets and the ways in which they constantly chided and challenged the rich and powerful of the day to defend the cause of the orphan, the widow, the alien, the stranger from a foreign land. That's a constant call into the lives of the rich and powerful. Why are the scales of justice based so much in favour of the rich and the powerful, they would say. So this is part of our calling. For example, it's from Psalm 82. Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. And of course, there's no one more vulnerable than the person who's under a potential sentence of death. New Testament example might be each of you ought to look out not only for your own interests but also for the interests of others. Look beyond ourselves and our self-interests but actually look beyond that. Galatians 6.10 talks about doing good to all, especially the family of believers. Make sure that we are doing good to everyone here but also do good to all. Extend that further and wider. Now, In dealing with this issue uh, at hand today, it's important to be clear about a couple of terms and important to be clear about what uh, is considered acceptable. First of all, euthanasia, what is it? It is the active intervention of one person to end the life of another. So that's the active intervention of the person of one person to end the life of another person. Assisted suicide, which you will have heard about quite a lot in the press in the last six months and I'll refer to later, is uh, when one person helps another person to end their own life. So it's one step removed but still involved in the overall act. Now this, what I'm going to say now is really important, led to some... some um, very valuable and touching discussions after the first service. There are situations where removing treatment allows someone to die. And that is not something that we call euthanasia or assisted suicide. So consider this statement, which is from the Christian Medical Fellowship, who take the same view as us in opposing those things, euthanasia and assisted suicide, to be legalized. Consider this is what uh, one of their commentators says. As I doctor, I've seen patients fall victim to overzealous and heroic treatments at the end of life that have simply prolonged the dying process and ignored the biblical wisdom that speaks of a time to die. I believe, as well as a time to die, that there is also a time to recognize that enough is enough. It is good medical practice to stop or not to start certain treatments in certain situations. So, let's be clear. In defending and upholding the right to life, I'm not attempting to implicate those who've taken a careful and ethical decision to remove life support. And it's important that if that is something that you may be 
uh, feeling uh, some degree of false guilt about, that you should be released from that and actually know that, uh, that that's not something that should be plaguing you. Now, in the midst of all of this, we can talk about theoretical issues, we can talk about practical structures, we can talk about all sorts of high-level things in society, but this is primarily about people, and it is primarily about their own stories, and it's primarily about their suffering. So, first story, Pam, a friend of mine in her 70s now, uh, Pam has suffered from motor neurone disease for over 20 years. Been looked after primarily by her husband, um, one of the most <laughs> remarkable people I know. He's incredibly smiley, incredibly positive, as is Pam in her pain. Pam went to the House of Lords 10 years ago to give evidence to a committee to say, don't introduce legislation to legalise euthanasia and assisted suicide because it's people like me that will end up being shoved off the planet. She gave her evidence and she continues to fight the fight till today. And uh, about six months ago, she spoke to me and she grabbed my arm after a church service and said, Gareth, keep fighting the fight. Keep fighting the fight. Remember how important life is in our society. So at this point, we might be thinking, a perfectly reasonable thing to think, perhaps this is simply a personal decision and we should allow people to make their own personal decisions. And as a Christian, that might well fit in with the biblical instruction. And we might think, well, should we therefore impose it on other people in society? Perhaps other people should not be bound by those things. And that sounds reasonable to us. It's a free country. We don't wish to impose the morality of one person over another. It's a tempting approach to us. But interestingly, it's not what the most vulnerable people in our society say. And um, so, first up, I'd just like to um, show you Baroness Tanny Gray-Thompson. Many of you will know, famous Paralympian, um, multiple gold medal winner. And I was fortunate enough to go to one of her um, meetings in the House of Parliament uh, just before Robert Maris's bill last September. And this is what she has to say. Why is it when people who are not disabled want to commit suicide, we try to talk them out of it? But when a disabled person wants to commit suicide, we focus on how we can make it possible. We believe the campaign to legalise assisted suicide reinforces deep-seated beliefs that the lives of sick and disabled people are not worth as much as other people's that if you're disabled or terminally ill, it is not worth being alive. They were powerful words, and uh, she'd invited MPs from all over the country to come and hear her and other contributors talk about this. Once the culture changes, it affects everybody. Um, a leading ethicist from the Netherlands, who've introduced such laws said this to us um, just before Robert Maris's bill. Don't do it, Britain. Once the genie is out of the bottle, you'll never get it back in again. And we will see evidence of that a little bit later on. He supported the introduction of assisted suicide. And he has changed his mind. And the most recent bill... Um, 
which was uh, Robert Maris's bill last September, um, gave various conditions uh, that the uh, order would be signed by two doctors, that they must assess the competence of the patient to make such a request. They must agree uh, that the prognosis would, for them to live would be less than six months. And yet, Robert Maris's bill was defeated by 330 votes to 118. Very decisively beaten, and we believe it's probably the end of that issue for this Parliament. It will be back, but it's probably end for this Parliament. But I want to look at some of the wider issues here. Why is it that in wider society there's such a push in this direction? Well, first of all, there is that question of autonomy. In other words, the right to determine our own lives. The ability to make a decision for ourselves. We want that power. Secondly, the fear of becoming dependent on others. Understandable when we see others being burdened, that we might feel like that. Thirdly, as people are now less closely connected than ever, for friends and family this becomes increasingly difficult. People are scattered all over the country. People have very busy lives. You can see why somebody who's left much more on their own than they would have been historically might well think now's the time for it to be ended. And also, it's been exacerbated by accounts of abuse that have sadly taken place in care homes and places around the country. We must be aware that the burden argument also extends as far as finances, cost to the NHS when people are making choices about where money should go. Is it still good to put so much money into somebody at the end of life when there's so much need earlier on in people's lives? And that Pressure is only going to increase. And finally, of course, there is the issue of pain, of facing pain. Very difficult to face pain. It's very difficult to face constant pain. And we recognize the suffering that is involved for many people. Interestingly, though, in um, Oregon which is one of the states of the USA which has introduced assisted suicide, pain is not in the top five reasons why people now opt for assisted suicide in the states, in in the state of Oregon. Now, what do doctors have to say? After all, I'm not a medical professional. There will no doubt be some in the congregation. What do doctors say? Well, over 57% of doctors would be opposed to bringing such a law in, and 60% would say they would personally not be involved if it ever became law, because of the fundamental change with the doctor-patient relationship. And the Royal Society of Psychiatrists is particularly concerned because of the issue of depression. How do you, when people are going through painful periods in their lives, how do you assess whether someone is actually making a competent decision when, understandably, their feelings uh, are going up and down all the time. So what could be the consequences? Well, the psychological effect on the old, the ill, and those with terminal diagnosis could be severe. And there is this inevitable push to relax the criteria once something has been introduced. Here is uh, Liz Carr. She's an actress with a long-term 
life-limiting condition, and uh, she was at the same meeting as um, Tani Gray Thompson, and she headed up the group Not Dead Yet, which was a fantastic organization, not a particularly Christian-based organization, but an organization of disabled people who brought these MPs together to tell them what they thought of proposals to introduce assisted suicide. If this bill becomes law, some disabled and vulnerable people will be subjected to exploitation and abuse and will die as a result. Those were her very words. What has happened in countries where such legislation has been Past. Well, I've mentioned Oregon already, but also there is, uh, the, there is Belgium and the Netherlands. And uh, let's have a look at the figures in the Netherlands. This is a country which in- introduced uh, both assisted suicide and euthanasia um, 10 years ago now. And you can see how the numbers of people who are dying through these means is rising very rapidly. They've relaxed the criteria more recently. And many people, it's difficult to now gather the figures because they don't seem to um, classify them as carefully as they once did. Um, But it's believed that between a quarter and a third of people who now die in the Netherlands are dying through this method. And in Belgium recently, the parliament have passed a bill to allow children under 18 to apply for assisted suicide Uh, because they felt it was unfair that adults had the opportunity to do so, but not children. So it's it's sobering stuff. It's challenging for us. But we want to think as Christians, what is a Christian response to all of this? What is a Christian response? Well, first of all, I think it's really important to say that we are not indifferent about suffering. The Bible says so much about suffering. I'm reading the book of Job at the moment. There's so much in the book of Job about personal suffering, about God and what he's doing in the midst of suffering, and about the big questions for the whole of society. The Bible has lots to say about suffering. We care about suffering because God cares about suffering. And Jesus himself, of course, suffered the most painful death the Romans could invent. He was brutally beaten, he was put on a cross in a humiliating and deliberately painful manner. And the whole reason was to deter rebellion against the Roman state. That's why they made crucifixion such an awful way to die. So in Jesus, God has experienced suffering. So our Christian response is to be those who say, we have vocation in the caring professions. So many Christians serve so well in the caring professions, helping those with both physical and mental suffering. It is both a challenge and a privilege to be involved in people's lives at these most tender of stages. A very good friend of mine who I'm seeing later this week, Simon, is an independent financial advisor. Now, I, I, I... don't get too excited about numbers myself. Um, so I said to Simon on one occasion, he's done this job for many, many years, I said, what is, the, what is the excitement, what is the privilege of being a financial advisor? He said, ah, oh, Gareth, I get to see the corners of people's lives that nobody else gets to see. 
I said, wow. And he said, and I get involved in the most privileged discussions of all, what to do at the end of somebody's life. He said, what a place to be a pastor and to be able to impart Christian wisdom. So it is a challenge and it is a privilege. And there'll be no doubt people in this congregation who are looking after parents and relatives who are finding it a burden and a struggle and a difficulty. And we understand that. We want to, and we are involved in care, in promoting palliative care, investing in it, lobbying the government to put more NHS funding in this crucial area. Uh, Baroness Finlay has a bill in the House of Lords at the moment legislating for equal access across the country because there's something of a postcode lottery in terms of people's access to it. We champion the work of the hospice movement, a movement that was designed and brought into um, being by Christians at St. Christopher's Hospice in Sydenham, south-east London. Many of them are struggling financially. Our local one receives 17% of its money from the government. That's a huge job to do, to be able to raise the money to provide good quality care via the hospice movement. So we have a definitively compassionate response. We want to help people. But we also, in the midst of it all, want to remember that the message of the Christian gospel is one of hope. Let's not lose sight of the fact that Jesus' death and resurrection are front and centre of our Christian message. One of the reasons for such a drive towards assisted suicide is a lack of hope. Many people would say this is all there is. There is nothing else. We know different. We know that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And we know that because of his resurrection, we will be resurrected too. This is important that we keep it front and centre. We don't want to lose sight. We don't want to try and become so involved in the present day arguments, which are important that we lose sight of the eternal message and the eternal hope that we have. My boss, Lyndon Bowring, you saw on the screen there, said the greatest, one of the greatest privileges he ever had was to care for his father-in-law in his final months. And he said and it was during that period of time that his father-in-law gave his life to Christ. Let's not lose sight of the fact that God can intervene in wonderful and miraculous ways, sometimes with physical healing often with bringing people to Jesus Christ himself. Let's pray for those who are caring. Let's pray for those who are suffering. And let's uphold a culture of life at the centre of our society rather than allowing a culture of death. Let's pray together, shall we? Our loving Heavenly Father, we're thankful to you that you are the voice of hope. You are the creator of our humanity. You are the breather of life. You are the sustainer of our lives. You are the eternal hope that we hold on to. And we pray that in this very difficult area, that you would give us biblical wisdom. You would give us spirit-filled compassion. You would give us a mission to look out for the most vulnerable members of our society. 
Help us as Christians to debate well, to put forward both the positive message of hope and also warn against the dangers of bringing in things that will make people suffer uh, an untimely death. Help us, we pray, to hold the resurrection of Jesus Christ front and centre in our thinking. Help us to be those who celebrate him in all circumstances. Help us to be those who are his messengers in people's darkest hours. For we ask these things for your glory, Lord. Amen.